please uh, turn in your Bibles to 3 John. If you don't have a Bible, uh, the passage will be displayed on the screen. There's also uh, Bibles on a shelf in the back there, or you can look it up on your phone. Uh, It's uh, right near the end of your Bible if you're looking for it. It's, uh, in most Bibles, just one page, uh, so you can easily miss it. Uh, 3 John is the shortest book in the New Testament. And that's why we're looking at um, 3 John this evening. I'm continuing a study with you in the shortest books of uh, the Bible. We can easily neglect some of these uh, short books because of their size, but I think that they have uh, an uh, an important message or important messages uh, to speak to us uh, here today. And so we've looked at Philemon and 2 John, and now we're going to look at 3 John. So let's read together. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. I've written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So if I come, I will bring up what he's doing talking wicked nonsense against us. And not content with that, he refuses to welcome the brothers and also stops those who want to and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Whoever does good is from God. Whoever does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself. We also add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had much to write to you, but I would rather not write with pen and ink. I hope to see you soon, and we will talk face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends, each by name. Let's go to the Lord for his help now. Our Father in heaven, you have told us to pray for the hallowing of your name and the advancement of your kingdom. And so, Lord, we, that is how we pray. We ask that you would exalt the name of Jesus in us and in our lives and that you would do that through us. We pray, Lord, that as individual members of this body and as a congregation, that you would deepen our love for Christ and that you would deepen our commitment to see Christ and his kingdom advanced in the world. Lord, we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Eighty years ago this month, Rosie the Riveter, an iconic figure in American history, made her debut on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post. More familiar to you will be her later appearance on a Westinghouse uh, poster. There, the dark-haired Rosie is seen flexing a muscular arm, saying, we can do it. Rosie was part of a larger campaign during the Second World War among the American population that communicated a very basic message. We all have a part to play in the war effort. 
Various posters promoted participation in the war effort at home. Uh, Positively, citizens were encouraged to uh, buy war bonds and plant victory gardens, uh, to carpool and to work in factories to supply the troops. There were also posters that warned of dangers to the war effort. Loose lips sink ships was one slogan. Other posters warned that you need to be careful about which pretty girls you talk to or what you say on the phone because the enemy might be listening. These posters told the American public that they were part of a bigger story. They were participants in that story. One that gave their work and their lives and efforts meaning and purpose. And though they did so from a different place than the boys who were fighting on the front lines in Europe or um, uh, in Japan, Americans at home had an important role to play in the promotion and protection of allied victory. Well, this language would have resonated with the Apostle John. In fact, he wants to communicate this very thing in his short letter. John wants to situate his readers, both Gaius then and and us now, within a much bigger story that gives meaning and purpose to our lives. We maybe will serve different roles in God's story. Some may be called to go. Others may be called to stay and support and send, but God has a purpose. He has a a cause, John wants us to see, that he's called us to participate in, in one way or another. And so our passage tonight pushes us to be participants in the advancement of God's gospel, in God's cause in the world. And it does this by encouraging us to promote the mission of Christ through practical partnerships, and to protect the mission of Christ from self-serving personalities. So that's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at the mission of the church, first of all, then the promotion of that mission, and then the protection of that mission. Well, 3 John is a small snapshot of a much bigger story. On the one hand, it's a story in the micro. It's a very personal story. It's concerned with specific local concerns that are shared by two church leaders. But on the other hand, it's about the macro. It's about something much larger. It's about things that transcend any single place or time or any single congregation. In the micro, on on the personal level, in this briefest of letters, we've got a sample of what healthy, caring relationships should look like between two Christians. In this case, it's the relationship between two Christians who were serving in ministry. John, an apostle and the author of this letter, he's writing to someone called Gaius. And so what we have here are two pastoral friends who are discussing life in ministry. And it's clear that John cares for Gaius deeply as a friend and colleague. You'll notice how three times he refers to Gaius with brotherly affection as beloved in verses 1, 5, and 11. And within this letter, John's going to express his love for Gaius in a number of different ways. Uh, He does that in his commendation of Gaius in verse 5. He expresses his love through an exhortation that he gives to Gaius. And he expresses that love too by warning Gaius about certain dangers. Each of, of these aspects, his affirmation, his commendation, his exhortation, his warnings, each of these things is a part of what healthy Christian relationships look like. But there's one other thing that, that 
is an aspect of healthy Christian relationships that we need to add. Healthy Christian relationships have a common purpose or outlook. A common purpose or outlook. In healthy Christian relationships, we've got a common mission or goal that, that we have for our lives. We see our lives as part of a bigger story. It's not a goal of our own making. It's God's goal. As Christians, we've been caught up into God's mission. And, and God's mission is to glorify His Son as the one who gives grace to sinners. Now, if you're here this evening and, and you're visiting, perhaps you're not a Christian, or maybe you're, you're trying to think through things, this is the most important part of the, this message for you to understand. That God is one who gives grace to sinners. And he does that by giving to sinners like you and me his son, Jesus, to bear the punishment for our sins as, as we put our trust in him. This is the gospel. This is the good news, which is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. And it's a message that, that God is, is promoting and advancing in the world so that he's gathering around his son a community of worshipers, a community of people who have not only had all their sins forgiven, but also who, because of Jesus, are having their, their, the, the, their deepest uh, desires satisfied. They're realizing that in Jesus, the love and acceptance that their hearts were made for is satisfied in him. God is about forming a community uh, uh, that, that delights in Jesus as our only hope. And this is the community that God invites you into tonight if you're not a Christian. He invites you to do that by placing your trust in Jesus. God's purpose in the world is to see his son, the Savior, exalted and adored. And for that to be done by hell-deserving sinners all around the world. That's God's purpose as far back as the Old Testament, but it's a purpose that explodes outward after Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Jesus, after he's been raised from the dead, he gives his disciples a mission that's well known to anyone who's been in the church for any length of time. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them all that I've commanded you. And so after the disciples receive the Holy Spirit at Pentecost in Acts 2, there's this explosion of missionary activity as the disciples take Jesus' message out from Jerusalem, where, which was sort of the epicenter, and out to the ends of the world. Because the disciples love Jesus and because they've experienced the grace that's found in Jesus, they are excited to make worshipers of Jesus. And the letter that's got our attention tonight, it's going to give us further insight into how this mission, which is our mission today, in terms of how God intends to advance this mission in the world. Now, John's writing this letter about 40 years after Jesus' resurrection. The church at this time is still, relatively speaking, small, but it's growing. And in those days, of course, communication was slower and more limited. The Apostle John could not just go live on his social and, and sort of stream out to his various followers this message of Jesus from his couch on his smartphone. The message of Jesus had to, be, had to go out by things like uh, written letters with pen and ink uh, and, and by traveling missionaries who would go out and in person uh, share this mission or, or this message about Jesus. 
And these traveling or itinerant missionaries were a regular feature of early church life. Now, in our world of sort of hyper-connectivity, uh, it's, it's maybe a, a bit hard for us to wrap our minds around this, but there would be traveling missionaries and, and preachers and Christians who would show up in town, and you might know nothing about them. And you couldn't just go on, you know, stalk their Facebook page and wonder, like, are they legit? What sort of things have they liked? You know, what sort of videos are posted or something like that? They would come, and, and you would have to do your own homework. You'd have to see, do they have letters of reference? Uh, um, are there people who sort of uh, commend them to us? Uh, what, what do they believe? What, what are they sort of uh, teaching? And sort of thinking through how, what to do with these traveling missionaries uh, was, was a big enough concern for the early church that the Didache, which is one of the earliest writings we have uh, from Christians outside the Bible, uh, they, it gives specific instructions for thinking through what do we do with these traveling preachers. You know, sometimes guys would come and they're really sort of charlatans or frauds. How do we handle that? How do we, how do, we do this vetting or, or, or work this out? Well, it's this practice of these traveling missionaries that's in the, the background of 3 John. And John commends Gaius for his faithful reception of traveling missionaries that had come to him. Now, John speaks of these brothers and possibly sisters that had come to Gaius. Uh, he's saying they were part of the same spiritual family uh, that John and Gaius belonged to. They were Christians. They, they believed and, and walked according to the truth as it's found in Jesus. And they were people who had gone out for the sake of the name, Jesus' name. They had left their homes. They had left their families so that they could go to new places and tell new people about Jesus. Now, these missionaries were uh, strangers to Gaius and his congregation. He didn't know them uh, personally. And yet it's clear from the letter that Gaius had received them warmly. Just because he didn't know them personally, that didn't stop Gaius from uh, exercising a generous hospitality to receive these gospel workers. Now, John doesn't tell us how uh, Gaius showed hospitality to them. Maybe he uh, coordinated places for them to stay when they came to town and fed them. Uh, maybe he arranged for a collection to support these Christians or restock their needs as they were intending to, to travel to uh, new locations. Maybe called together the church in, in this place and invited them to pray uh, for these missionaries and their work. But whatever it was that Gaius had done, whatever hospitality he had demonstrated, his generosity, his kindness had left such an impression on these missionaries that when they got back home to where John was, they made specific mention of Gaius and the kindness that they had received. And John commends Gaius for this. He tells them, he tells Gaius that he had acted faithfully. And now it appears that Gaius has another opportunity to prove his faithfulness. We see in verse 6, John says, you will do well to send these missionaries on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So there's something future tense here. It's possible that uh, John's referring to the people who are carrying this letter uh, to Gaius, or maybe it was the original missionaries who were coming back again, or maybe John's just sort of speaking generally, when traveling missionaries uh, uh, come to you, uh, you know, here's what you should do. We don't know for certain exactly what the circumstances uh, were, but what's clear is that John encouraged Gaius to give traveling gospel workers the royal treatment. 
to send them out in a manner worthy of God. Now, that's a striking phrase. They're going out for the sake of Jesus, so we should treat them like we would treat Jesus if he were going out from us. Now, at a most basic level, uh, this would certainly involve prayer and Christian kindness, but it obviously needs to involve more than that. It would involve interest and encouragement. It would especially involve practical and financial support. John says that these gospel workers, they hadn't sought support from the Gentiles, from the pagans, from those outside the church, uh, nor should they. So it's fitting that they would be uh, supported and that the church would play a generous role in financing the work of bringing the gospel to the nations. And when we do this, John says in verse 8, we become fellow workers for the gospel. Now, this point shouldn't be overlooked. We have a part to play in the mission which Jesus has given to his church. Now, for some of us, that will mean going to new places uh, to tell people about Jesus. But for others of us, we might be called to stay and engage in that mission right where God has established us. But one of the ways that we participate in that mission from where God has rooted us is to support those who go out for the gospel to new or underreached places. If we're to return to our World War II example, there are goers and there are senders. In terms of God's global mission, there are those on the front lines and there are those who are on the home front. Both are engaged in Christ's mission to make disciples of the nations. Both are needed. When we send and support missionaries, we are great commission partners for the sake of Christ. John's saying the work of missions isn't just something that, that happens by a few people out over there, but it's something that the whole church engages in together, even though we might have different roles. They're still important. Now, there's several qualifications we can give here. It matters who goes. We don't just support anyone who wants to serve as a missionary. Things like character and ability need to be weighed and discerned when uh, considering who to support. Uh, furthermore, you should demonstrate a faithfulness to actually talk to people about Jesus here before you're supported to talk to people about Jesus over there. It matters as well what missionaries teach and believe. You might recall from John's second letter, John says, don't give support or don't give welcome to those who don't hold to the apostolic teaching. So doctrine matters when considering who we support. And it matters what uh, the missionaries intend to do when they go. John doesn't have in mind here people who would uh, build schools or dig wells or things like uh, of that nature. Those are good things, but that's not what John primarily is talking about at least not in ends in themselves. John's talking about those who go out uh, as Christians to evangelize and make disciples of Jesus or, or to assist those who are doing that locally by speaking the word of Christ. Now, there are other points or qualifications maybe that we could make here, but I don't want to obscure John's main concern that by practical partnerships, we participate in and we promote the cause of Christ. Now, I wonder, does that, does that excite you? As a Christian, I think it should to think that you have a meaningful role to play, even from Grand Rapids, Michigan, in seeing Jesus, your Jesus, lifted up 
among people who do not yet know him. Your work, your giving, your support, your prayers are part of a meaningful uh, effort where Jesus' mission is, is brought, uh, it's, it's carried out in the world, and his name is lifted up in worship. Now, we can get even more specific in terms of our application here. John speaks of supporting uh, faithful missionaries that uh, Gaius' congregation hadn't yet met. We do something similar as a, a congregation as we financially uh, support uh, the, the uh, OPC's uh, Committee on Foreign Missions. Right? And through that, the congregations of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, we support missionaries in places like Uruguay and Ukraine and Uganda and Haiti and elsewhere. But we also have people who are right here at Harvest who are committing to going out to do gospel work. Some for a short time, some for a longer period of time. Mikhail Tunis uh, is going to the Boardwalk Chapel uh, this, this summer to spend her time talking with people about Jesus on the New Jersey Boardwalk. Uh, Mason Vanderstel and Campbell Wiersma, our Lord willing, will be going to, to Prague uh, to work with English language camps to... to um, to do uh, gospel outreach there. They, they still need to raise a, a, a bunch of money yet. Josh and Chelsea Vanderwall. Uh, Josh earlier this year sent out a report of, of his trip to Nepal. They're looking to do medical missions in, in Nepal longer term. Stephen Nyland and Jordan Sweezer, both engaged in uh, gospel ministry right here in Grand Rapids, uh, looking to raise full-time annual salary in order to free themselves up uh, to do that work of, of personal evangelism. Paige Vanderway. Paige, Lord willing, will be going to Radius International to be trained uh, to bring the gospel to unreached people groups. Paige still needs to raise $3,500 this year and, and longer-term support if she's on the field after that. Now, I hear that list, and first of all, I want to say praise God that he's put it on people's heart to go out and speak of Jesus. That's a work of the Spirit that we can give thanks for. That's a great thing. And God has been providing for these uh, brothers and sisters already. In some cases, he's, he's even met their needs. But we as a congregation have an opportunity to support those who are going out. Now, perhaps the easiest way you could do that is to talk to one of these people uh, directly. Or you could, if you don't know them, you could give a check uh, in the offering, just earmark it, short-term missions fund. Uh, our witness team, overseen by Pastor Adrian, helps oversee the distribution of that money to support those who are going out for the sake of Jesus. And this way, we here at Harvest, here in Wyoming, Michigan, we have a meaningful role to play out of love for Jesus, a love for his mission, to partner, to see the, the gospel promoted uh, here and around the world. But there's more to John's letter. In verses 5 to 8, John exhorts us uh, how we can practically partner for the gospel's advance. That's, uh, he, he's speaking of going on the offensive. Uh, it's, it's about promoting the mission of Christ. But there's another side that we need to consider as well. It's, it's more defensive in nature. It's about protecting the mission of Christ from sabotage. We see this in verses 9 and 10. Because now the two pastors turn to discuss a troublesome person in the church. Now, we don't know too much about Diotrephes. Uh, this is his only uh, infamous appearance in the Bible, but he was apparently some figure of influence in his local church. One commentator pulled no punches when describing Diotrephes this way. 
He was a refractory, that means an unruly or stubborn, person of overweening ambition. Now just look at what John says about disruptive diatrophies. Diatrophies is proud. That's perhaps the main point. He loves to put himself first, verse 9. Now this is the opposite of uh, humility, which the Bible tells us is is counting the interests of of others as above our own. And we see uh, an attitude of humility hinted at in this letter in John's commendation of Gaius, who lovingly uh, served and took care of the missionaries. We also see this humility uh, indicated in, in John, whose great joy is to see others walking in the truth as it's found in Jesus. This humility springs from a love for others. But by contrast, here's Diotrephes, who loves to put himself first. I want you to note that this is the one thing that John says about Diotrephes' character. And I think it suggests that all of the other things that he mentions about him flows from a heart that pride has turned in on itself. Because Diotrephes loves to put himself first, he refuses to acknowledge those whom God has placed in authority over him. As an apostle, John had a unique foundational authority in the church, but Diotrephes just sort of dismisses him, uh, dismisses John. He's not going to pay any heed to him. Diotrephes supports his dismissal of John's authority with a campaign of slanderous speech. The English Standard Version puts it this way, talking wicked nonsense against us. Or another reliable translation says that Diotrephes was bringing unjustified charges against us with evil words. Rather than come under John's authority, Diotrephes seeks to tear John down with baseless accusations. And if it wasn't bad enough, Diotrephes didn't just target John. He actually refuses to offer hospitality to these traveling missionaries, and he kicks out of the church anyone who dares to do it contrary to his orders. And we don't know why Diotrephes did this. John Stott suggests it could be Diotrephes didn't want to share the spotlight uh, with anyone else. Or maybe he just didn't want to do what John said should be done. Whatever his motives, Diotrephes is inhospitable, and he abuses his authority by punishing any who seek to provide for these who had gone out for the sake of Christ. Now, difficult self-serving characters are not a new development in the church. Sometimes we may romanticize earlier eras of the church, but Diotrephes shows us very clearly that there are a few challenges that are actually new. He is, however, a warning sign of what we must protect against for the sake of Christ's mission. Self-love or pride destroys relationships, it sows dissension, and it distracts from gospel mission. Here's how John Stott put it. Self-love vitiates, it spoils all relationships. Diotrephes slandered John cold-shouldered the missionaries, and excommunicated the loyal believers, all because he loved himself and wanted to have the preeminence. Personal vanity still lies at the root of most dissensions in every local church today. Diotrephes' unchecked pride also meant that he was sabotaging the apostolic mission of this local fellowship. Because Diotrephes, because of his love for self, these missionaries were hindered in, in their work of bringing the gospel out, But also, this local church experienced the strife that distracts from doing greater things. Now, Diotrephes shows us that sometimes the biggest threat to a local church carrying out Christ's mission is not 
what's outside the church, but what's inside the church. In fact, I would say that there's nothing so successful at disturbing, disrupting, or derailing the mission of the church as unchecked pride of a church's members. Even persecution God uses to advance or grow the church, but pride has always spoiled her. Now, there are many ways that pride manifests itself. We need to constantly be on guard against this sort of attitude in our own hearts of wanting a priority of place. Uh, But just in terms of our our application, I'm going to restrict ourselves to noting two of self-love's rotten fruits that are found in John's letter. Both have to do with our relationship to authority. One rotten fruit of self-love is a resistance to or rejection of God-ordained leaders in the church. Now, let me be very clear. Teaching elders and ruling elders are not apostles. Yet God has granted real spiritual authority to the elders of the church when they faithfully interpret and apply the Bible. Elders speak with apostolic authority when we faithfully take the apostles' teaching and we apply it faithfully to the life of the church. But a proud spirit will resist and resent the faithful exercise of godly authority. Now, this might be as overt as rejecting those whom God has placed in authority in the church. It might also uh, take the form of spurning exhortations of elders when they seek to faithfully put forth what the scripture says we should believe or how we should live. It could also be speaking ill of those who are in ecclesiastical authority by spreading malicious nonsense about leaders in the church as Diotrephes did. Positively, instead, Scripture tells us that we should eagerly give thanks for godly leadership where that exists. Humility esteems such leaders highly and gives thanks for them because of their work, 1 Thessalonians 5. Humility receives and submits to the leaders uh, whom God has given to his church in the Lord as gifts whom God has given to the church to serve her and to take care of her. A humble spirit does not have a problem with being under the authority of another or submitting to another, an, another's lead. So one symptom of, the, of this self-love that we need to watch out for is an attitude that dismisses legitimate spiritual authority in the church. Yet having said this, we also need to warn against a second rotten fruit of self-love, and it's closely related Diotrephes not only rejects the authority of others, but he abuses authority himself. Now, I want to resist the anti-authority spirit that sort of pervades our culture, but we do need to acknowledge that authority can be abused. In a fallen world, those in authority can get it wrong, and worse yet, we can wield our authority for self-serving ends. So let me address Uh, my fellow elders and deacons and pastors here and, and those who might one day serve in those offices. We must not be afraid to exercise the authority which God has given us in his word for his purposes. But we should be terrified of the temptation to wield that authority for our own self serving purposes. Now, if your heart is anything like mine, and the answer is it is, uh, at least a little bit like mine, the love of self is something that is sneaky. Uh, It's invasive like a weed, and having some degree of authority only makes it more challenging. Before God and with other other, other people, we need to be constantly checking ourselves for this love of self. 
Now, what are the warning signs that we need to be on, on guard for? Well, like Diotrephes, it may be that I resent sharing the spotlight or, or I punish other people when they cross me. I take it personally. Or I get quick uh, to, to get angry when things don't go my way. Or I'm not able to uh, lose a vote. Or I'm unable to support an idea that's not my own. Right? These are just a few of the symptoms of a leader whose heart is beginning to turn in on itself in pride. Now, ultimately, one of the results of this unchecked love of self in the church, whether it's for those who are um, dismissing uh, authority as God places in the church or whether those who are abusing authority in the church, one of the results of that is that the church's faithfulness to Jesus' mission is hindered. And that should grieve us. When the good news about what Jesus, what he's done for us, when that grips me and when that grips us as a congregation, we find ourselves growing, not in a love for ourselves, but growing in a love for other people and our world gets bigger. We want to, to move outward and we want to see other people love and grow in Jesus as we ourselves are experiencing. That's the attitude that we see in Gaius, a heart transformed to love other people for their good, to engage in Christ's mission out of a love for Christ and a love for other people. But when self-love, when pride goes unchecked or unmortified in the church, what we find is that our fellowship begins to fray. Our world begins to shrink. And the priority becomes getting what I want, defending uh, my turf. And it ultimately is not about participating in what God wants and what God is doing in the world. But there's one final observation we should make. As John wraps up his letter, he urges Gaius, Beloved, do not imitate evil, but imitate good. And then he goes on to commend Gaius, uh, uh, commend to Gaius a Christian brother named Demetrius in verse 12. I think given what John has said in this short letter, it's uh, unavoidable to draw the conclusion that John is setting up a contrast here between two alternatives. On the one hand, there's diatrophies. His conduct, we should understand, is evil. His self-love and its rotten fruits suggest to John that he does not know God at all. He hasn't seen God. But then there's Demetrius. He's commended in a general sense by all who know him. His conduct uh, uh, agrees with, with uh, his, his testimony. He's commended by the apostle himself. And the implication of verse 11 is that Demetrius is someone who truly knows God and has Jesus living in him, at work in him. And so John lays before Gaius, and he lays before us two examples. He's telling us that we have a choice to make. What type of people, beloved, will we show ourselves to be? There's the way of uh, uh, diatrophies that's characterized by pride and a love of self. And let's be honest, that way has its appeals. Right? You're in charge. You get your own way. People respond to you. You're not being told what to do. But, says John, this way of self-love is not from God. It has no spiritual power. The soul that knows God will find that there is a growing desire to take a backseat to Christ and his mission in the world. That what we want, what we want is to decrease that Jesus and his mission in the world might increase. A heart that, that knows God will be growing in a love for Jesus and others, and we will want to, to promote Jesus 
And we'll want to do all that we can to protect his mission of seeing Christ's name exalted throughout the world. So the apostles' words speak to us. Be discerning. We must watch our own hearts, yes. We also need to consider carefully who you follow and whose example you copy. Because who we imitate and how we live preaches a sermon, John would say, about our souls. So beloved, for Jesus' sake, out of a love for Jesus, consider carefully who you follow and whose example you copy. And so then do not imitate evil, but imitate good. Amen. Our Father in heaven, when we think about what Christ has done for us and our affections, we need to confess that our affections are far too weak, that too often times, Lord, our purposes are nowhere close to where they should be in terms of zeal to see Jesus adored and worshipped. But Lord, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would be working in us, that we would know you so intimately, so personally, that a growing love in us would move us out toward others, to move us to support those who are going out, and a growing love for Jesus would call us to be zealous, to fight against the love of self, to fight against whatever would turn ourselves inward, Lord, we pray that you would work this love in us here at Harvest Church for the glory of your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. I ask that you now stand as we sing our song of response for the cause.
receive God's blessing taken from 2 Thessalonians 1. May our God make you worthy of his calling and fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank mm-hmm. you.